That's one story of growing seeds. We see an impatient toad wanting the seeds to grow. He goes through a lot of work, and they finally grow when he gives up. (laughs) We see a couple other stories about seeds here in Mark chapter 4, verse 1. And again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables or riddles. And his teaching, and in his teaching, he said to them, Listen! A sower went out to sow seed, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no gain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears, let him hear. In verse 26, There's a second story. Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts it in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And in verse 30, a third story. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. So we've actually had four stories now about seed. One by frog and toad, the other by Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. Uh, The other three by him. There's this theme through all three of his stories in our passage tonight of seed. Now, the thing in the story of frog and toad is that toad was not allowing the seeds to go through their own process. He wanted to plant a seed and then see the instant growth, the instant fruit. And I fear that that is the culture we live in today, is that we want to sow seed and we want to see immediate growth from it. We want immediate return. 
We're an impatient society that wants shallow and instant results. And all we care about is the number, the bottom line, and not about whom we're wrecking or destroying on the way to it. We have this need for speed in our society. We have a need for speed. Consider Facebook's motto. Move fast and break things. That's been their motto since the beginning. Move fast and break things. I just read an article about Amazon and the way that they work and their leadership structure and some of their leadership principles. One of them is speed matters. Speed matters. And right now, uh, we know that people are pressing the government to look into Amazon because they have been growing so fast that their expansion is causing dangerous practices. And one of uh, a New York Times article recently said that people are starting to sue Amazon because some of their couriers, whom they're just hiring at whim because of the last mile they need more drivers, are driving so fast that they're killing people on streets because we need things faster. We have a need for speed, so much so that it's not just us waiting impatiently at our microwaves. That's sort of a silly illustration of our need for speed. But on a bigger global scale, we want things done instantly. And companies now are buying a philosophy and is trickling down to our youth culture and even us that what we want is things now and they have to happen quickly. If we have to wait or work for things, it can't be the right path. That's the need for speed. B.J. Novak is known as a a writer for some television shows, and he has a book of short stories in which, one, he has a parody on the tortoise and the hare. Now, you remember the, the moral from the tortoise and the hare, that the tortoise and the hare race, and the tortoise was really slow, naturally, and the hare was so fast and thought he was so far ahead of the tortoise, he decided to take a nap, And while he was asleep, the tortoise passed him up and won. And the moral of the story is that slow and steady wins the race. Well, just to show you the signs of the times, B.J. Novak writes a parody on that story to show us what culture says about that story. Slow and steady wins the race. What kind of rubbish is this? So he retells the story of the tortoise and the hare. The tortoise is busy on book tours and preaching out, slow and steady, slow and steady wins the race. And he's the self-help guru to everybody. The hare, on the other hand, well, in order to cope with his tragic loss, he's gained weight, he's lost weight, he's gone all kinds of diets, he found religion, then he found the strange cult of a religion, he's changed jobs, he's moved locations. But then he starts to... Throw it out to everybody. Hey, what if, what if I decide to re-race the tortoise, you know? Just kind of see what happens as he's running around and asking people. And then soon Buzz goes around town. Yeah, there should be a rematch. Well, of course, the tortoise continually says, no, no, I'm not revisiting the past. I'm moving forward, forward, forward. Finally, though, the pressure is so great that the tortoise decides to agree to a rematch. I won the first time anyways. And if I really believe Sloan said he wins the race, why shouldn't I beat him again? I'm undefeated after all. So the race is set. The tortoise and the hare. And the gun is fired. And they race off. And never has anyone in the history of all sports and all racing ever been so utterly and humiliated as the tortoise was. The hare broke all records, broke the fastest animal record as he crossed that finish line. He was so determined to show that tortoise that I am not a loser. And then B.J. Novak ends the story by saying, 
slow and steady wins the race till truth and talent take its place. So the, the view of the culture today, whether he agrees with that or not, he's definitely touching upon what culture feels. Slow and steady is so old-fashioned and traditional. Be more talented, be more powerful, be more influential. That's what wins the race. Slow and steady is for those who have no other option. Well, we already know now where big organizations are headed and their downfalls that are impending and the suspicion they're under. I'm not so sure that move fast and break things or speed matters is the best philosophy in life. And it sure wasn't for Jesus. Jesus was never in a hurry. Ever. Now, Mark uses the word immediately a lot in his gospel. Mark is in a hurry. Mark is breathlessly getting this story out to us, skips the birth of Jesus and gets right to his baptism. Mark is in a hurry. But Jesus is never in a hurry. In fact, this we will see this next week. But in chapter 5, verse 21, there's a long episode there, 521, it goes to the end of the chapter, in which Jesus should be in a hurry to heal someone whose daughter's about to die. On the way, the daughter dies because Jesus was meandering and bumbling along. And you can imagine, I was like, what in the world, Jesus? That girl just died because you weren't in a hurry. But Jesus had stopped to heal a woman who asked for his need. He was never in a hurry. And that daughter lived nonetheless. This we're looking at tonight is the unhurried way. So slow and steady wins the race till truth and talent takes its place, BJ Novak, or consider Richard Foster, who's written one of the most, one of the classic Christian books. Uh, I don't even remember what it's called right now. It's like Christian Discipline or something like that. Um, celebrate, yeah, somebody knows it. A celebration of Discipline, was that it? Yeah. So Richard Foster, who writes about the Christian disciplines, says this. The desperate need today is not for a great number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. What we need today are deep people. There is a real lack of depth in people today. We consider the internet a good source of knowledge. We surf the internet and watch television more than we read books or learn actual in-deep stuff. I'm not at all trying to slam non-book readers. You might have your other ways of being deep. It's just an example. We have a real need for depth. And this is not just, it's easy for us as a church, isn't it? It's easy for us to point the finger and say, yeah, the BJ Novaks, they need to hear here. But Richard Foster is writing to the church because the church is guilty of lacking depth. We are just as guilty. I overheard conversation last night, someone saying um, that they, you know, I have God in my heart and all. So like, I, I kind of like a casual Christian, but you know, that means I don't really feel like I have a need to go to church every week or that I need to read the Bible every day. There's a lot behind that little phrase I overheard. But part of it is, I've got God in my heart. That's all that matters. I know where I'm going. I got the beliefs down. That's it. Like we just live like every other person in this world until heaven. Friends, the Bible isn't just asking us to get out of hell. 
The Bible is asking us to be redeemed to the true image of humanity, to be people of depth who show what it looks like when God takes over a life so that we are trained and conditioned when we get to the end of this way and to the new heaven and new earth, we are trained and conditioned to be rulers and co-leaders with Christ over heaven. That's our destiny. But we've, we've missed what the scriptures are trying to take us to and where the way is going. One, because we don't like to read Isaiah because it's long. It's like, I might as well read Tolstoy. And by the way, Tolstoy, who's going to read long books like War and Peace when there are short little articles I can get done in a few seconds online? So we don't read Isaiah, so we don't know where the whole story is going. And we, and we start to think that all we need is a little bit of God and now we're good. My future's set. And Christ wants to show us, whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I have so much more. There's so much infinite space for your roots to dip into so that your crown can reach upward. There's infinite space. Paul prays to the Ephesians in chapter 3 of, of Ephesians, chapter 3. Paul prays, I Want you to know the height, the depth, the length, and the breadth of the love of God. I want you to reach your branches out, to grow your crown up, and to sink your roots down into the endless safari that Christ is. But, you know, we don't need to go to church every week or read our Bibles every day because we have enough. Now, You're right. We don't need to. You don't need to go to church every week. You don't need to read your Bible every day. That is 100% true. My status with God is not dependent upon my performance before God. It's not conditioned upon how well I am in the Word or praying or at church. I am positionally in Christ. It's my position in Him that matters, not my condition of how I'm doing these things. However... If I don't choose church, if I don't choose scripture, then I am by default saying yes to culture. And it is preaching at me. And I am practicing its liturgies and singing its worship songs and praising its idols and reading its scripture and letting its worldview get into me. Do you really think that one church service a week is enough to fend off the world? And I only need to go when I feel like it. Because God's in my heart. Okay, he is in your heart. But so is the world. And it's been said that God took Israel through the wilderness and he had to take them through the wilderness for 40 years because, yeah, he got Israel out of Egypt, but he had to get Egypt out of Israel. So... We cannot live our Christian walk with God as if it's just sowing seed and it's just going to pop on right up like Toad wanted. It takes hard work. Now, not, not hard work to get God's favor, to reiterate. Not to get his favor, but hard work so that we begin to grow the fruits of the Spirit in our lives. These things do not happen on autopilot. It does take some discipline, some choice, some commitment. So we need people of depth. We need people who are not in a hurry. Because you know what hurry does? Is it looks for shortcuts. It looks for things, it looks for feelings. Because feelings are instant feedback. Have you ever noticed that? 
you meet someone and you get a bad feeling about them, but you have absolutely no basis for your feeling, instant feedback, you later learn, oh, they were just arrested for domestic violence. Our feelings give us instant feedback, but that's not always the way that Christianity goes. So we tell people to do things like, hey, be generous with your money to the church and to people. Yeah, but where's the return on that? I could get a subscription to Netflix and Hulu and Disney Plus for that. Well, and I'm sure you'll get instant feedback from those things. But the disciplines say, hey, be generous with your money and your stuff. The disciplines say, hey, fast. The disciplines say, read your Bible. The disciplines say, pray. The disciplines say, serve others. And you know what I get? I get from people, especially like students, like, try that. It didn't really do anything for me. It doesn't matter what it's doing for you. It matters what it's doing to you. And little by little, the actions begin to inch us, just like a seed. Little by little, the sprout comes out. And little by little, and little by little. You notice what you read in the second story. It was in verse 27. The man scattered seed, and then it says, 27, He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. In other words, the seed's growing because God is growing it. This farmer is not a genius. It's not his gifts that make the seed grow. There's no such thing as a contest between which farmer can magically make the seed grow faster. Now, there are practices to make the seed grow well. Christian disciplines. God's the one who brings the produce. But notice also that it says that he goes to sleep, rises night and day, sleeps and rises night and day, that is so great, because that is my life 90% of the time. I wish I was sleeping 90% of the time. But the phrase, sleeps and rises night and day, is another way for saying, it's your mundane routine. You make coffee, you make lunches for kids, you go to the bathroom, you clean the bathroom, you vacuum your floors, you put your clothes away, you make dinner, you throw dinner away, you go to sleep, you go to work, you see the same person you avoid who seems to go out of their way to say, hey, did you see the game last night? This is the mundane routine. This is the waking, rising, day and night routine of life. But behind the scenes of all this, the seed is growing. Or let's put this in the Christian context. Come to church every week. And we wish just for one week it would be like the episode in last week where there was that demoniac in the synagogue who starts screaming crazily and Jesus heals him. Just one week let it be interesting. Or the roof is ripped open and someone's lowered and a guy who didn't walk now walks. You're like, just one week, Lord, let that happen. Yet you come every week. Some of you go to morning church and evening church. And it's like, yep, same. I know exactly what to expect. The pastor's going to say this and that and close with that he's going to be in this text or this is going to happen or there's going to be these songs and it's always the same number of songs and will they stop playing that one it's so replaced on air one and it's at that church and that church and there's a lot of predictability there's a lot of routine there's a lot of rut there's a lot of i've read this scripture passage a hundred times i know this one by heart there's a lot of praying and getting no response there's a lot of seeing the same people who never seem to be growing like i am It's a lot of that. Yet, when you keep at it, the seed keeps growing 
and you know not how. Jesus does not want you to go looking for the limelight where they promise. It's like Rogaine for Christianity or something. It doesn't exist. There is no shortcut to character. There's no shortcut to the fruits of the Spirit. You manipulate love. You pretend that you're a loving person. You just put that on. You know what you end up doing? You suffocate the people you're trying to love. You actually start to twist them, manipulate them, and everything you're doing for them is an ulterior motive for yourself. Because you want to be wanted. You can't fake these things. You can't manipulate these things. They come through the gradual growth. Moses was told by God, Deuteronomy 7.22. I love this verse, so you might want to write it down. Deuteronomy 7.22. God tells Moses, You will not gain the promised land all at once. You will gain it little by little. Uh, God, don't you know how the Egyptians work? Yes. But Moses, if you gain the land all at once, I'm adding a lot of words here. If you gain all the land at once, then God says, the wild beasts will be too numerous for you. And isn't that true? The beasts lurk in the places where we're in a hurry. God wants us to grow little by little. And we need to be patient. We need to be patient with the process. Okay, so there were some impatient people in the day of Jesus. I'm going to give you four of them. You met the Pharisees last week. They were on the hurry way. Not the unhurried way, the hurry way. And you saw a little bit of how. The Pharisees saw, okay, Israel's in trouble. We need the, we need the Messiah to come and his kingdom to come now. Not the Romans. So, we are going to get really cranky and hunker down on the law. Oh, infraction, everyone let them know they're outsiders now until they get on act with the law. Oh, oh, Jesus, you can't do that. It's the Sabbath. Oh, no, don't eat with him. Right? Remember, they're hunkering down on the law because for them, this is how God will bring the Messiah. When they finally keep the law, specifically the Sabbath was one of the things they're counting. That if we stop breaking the Sabbath, Messiah will come. Okay, so hurry up and hunker down on the law. Second group is the Sadducees. They're not the Pharisees. They're very different people. Pharisees were common people. They would be just like you or I. It was a mindset that they had, and they were very intelligent with the scriptures. The Sadducees were upper class. They were the fat cats. They lived in Jerusalem, and archaeology has revealed that they had some very wealthy homes in Jerusalem. The Sadducees were of the order of the priests. It's very corrupt during Jesus' time. The Sadducees weren't trying to hunker down on the law. They were trying to climb the ladder of opportunity. So when the Romans come along, the Sadducees get cozy with the Romans and say, we don't want anything to happen to ruin our wealth and prosperity. In fact, we've learned that by siding with the Romans, we can actually get more wealth and prosperity. They will fill our pockets if we keep the people quiet and down. So the Sadducees decided, you know what? God hasn't brought his kingdom. He hasn't done what he's wanted yet. So let's make it happen by climbing the ladder of opportunity. So the Pharisees, the Sadducees, you also have the Essenes. The Essenes, lesser known because you don't actually see them come up in the Bible by name. But it's believed that John the Baptist was an Essene. The Essenes were people who retreated from Jerusalem 
Look, the whole temple mess, the Sadducees, it's so corrupt, the Messiah will never come until there's a community of people who do it right. So we are going to retreat to the wilderness in the Dead Sea area, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, the Essenes, their community. There they practiced a perfect Jewish community and believed that the Messiah would come when they, well, they believed that they were going to bring the Messiah. Ended up not happening. So the Pharisees are hunkering down. The Sadducees are climbing the ladder up. The Essenes are withdrawing. And finally, there are the Zealots. The Zealots were attacking. The kingdom of Rome is not the kingdom of God and his Messiah. Fight the Romans. And so the Zealots were those revolutionaries in the streets of Paris. They're the ones throughout all history that just want to take matters into their own hands. Draw the sword. We can do this. I wonder if we're choosing one of these in-a-hurry paths rather than the unhurried way. Are we hunkering down on purity? Are we trying to climb the ladder of status and opportunity in the world and the world around us? Are we retreating from the world around us like the Essenes, trying to remain untouched? Or are we attacking the world like the zealots and taking matters into our own hands? Or are we following Jesus on the unhurried way, allowing his seed to be sown upon us and letting it grow in his time? Yeah, we see the country, we see the mess, we see the politics, we read the news, we see the culture, we see the degradation of morals, we see the lack of depth and the shallowness, and all of us say, let's do something about it! But how would Jesus want us to go? So let's look at, one of the, let's look at these parables a little bit more closely so we can get some clues. We, we notice that the seeds are slow and steady, and that Jesus is not stressing out, and he's not making things happen. So notice back to that second story. Um, the kingdom of God, this is verse 26, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. Notice the stages. You know how you want growth in this area? There's this thing that you just can't seem to kick. There isn't always an overnight transformation. There's stages. And the best and lasting growth comes in stages. So let's say, I talk to a lot of people like this, they just can't get into the Bible regularly. Okay, great. If you're, if you're at least getting someone to teach it to you, that's a, at least you have that. But let's say you want to get into it on your own. Well, it's probably a little ambitious of you to think, I know what I'm going to do. At New Year's, I'm going to buy a one-year Bible, and I'm going to keep it all 365 days of the year. Whew, I guarantee that's not happening. I'm a pastor, and I've never successfully read the one-year Bible <laughs> mostly because I don't want to, but <laughs> I like it a little slower. But stages. Don't think that you're going to get there that way. You're going to get there by starting with, read books of the Bible you like. 
Because you know what happens? We like Genesis. Exodus is cool for half of the story, then the other half, eh, I'll get through that. And then Leviticus comes and everyone throws the Bible on the shelf. That's it. This is all it has to offer. You see, that's not the way to grow in stages. That's trying to become the Bible champ overnight. Start with things you like. Start with Ephesians. If you're really crazy, start with Revelation. Just start with things that excite you and then grow from there. These things come in stages. Same thing with your prayer life. They come in stages. If you want to start learning how to give and not be so selfish with your money and your stuff, it starts with stages. Although sometimes there are things that are easier just to lop off right away. But um, they come in stages. Now, so we see that there. Then I want you to look at verse 30 at the third story, and we see that Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a mustard seed, little tiny seed. But then it becomes this great big thing with branches, bush, a tree. The scholarship goes back and forth. It was boring reading about this parable. What we see the point of it is, there's lots of things to get into, but the is that you have something very little that grows into something very big to shelter birds. And no one does anything. All the farmer does is he throws a seed, and it goes from little tiny to really big. We might feel very insignificant. We might feel like we have nothing to offer. We might feel like a little tiny mustard seed. But if we let God work in us, we can grow up into something that can shelter the birds. God takes little beginnings and can grow them in his time. How long does it take a mustard seed to shelter birds? I don't know. I'm not a specialist on the mustard seed, although there's some stats out there. But what I do know is that we live in a great place where we see a lot of friends around us who are on the unhurried way. Do you know who I'm talking about? They're really tall friends, and they're all older than us. The trees of the forest are teaching us the unhurried way. And there's an excellent book, if you want to know more about trees, called The Hidden Life of Trees. And in this, you, it blows your mind about trees. The Hidden Life of Trees. The author there reveals that many trees will not actually hit their growth spurt till the age of 80. That trees will stay about the height of a human until they're 80, um, what they're doing is the mother tree who spawned them with her little seed, and now they're, you know, they're much littler, the mother tree is like 200 plus years old, really tall, blocks out so much sunlight, and the other mother trees around, that only 2 to 3% of the light gets these little trees. And so the mothers actually starve them of light so that they will grow strong before they grow tall. And it's as if God's saying, hello, parable right there in your backyard, That's how I want my church and my people to grow. It's not a race to the top because then you'll be toppled over. That There are times and seasons where he's just going to let us feel like we're not getting anywhere, but it's building up ammunition, if you will. It's building up a supply for when we do have the opportunity to take off. And when these trees take off is once a big storm or age simply topples the mother tree down, the sunlight comes through, And the race is on for all the other ones. But see, they've had what they need to now grow as fast as they need, right? They've had years of storing that up. In um, Planet Earth, just another example, very similar. Uh, You guys have seen the BBC series Planet Earth, I'm sure. You should if you love God's creation. It's amazing. There's the one episode about jungles and 
a big tree comes down. Jungle, the, the big jungles are the same. Two to three percent of sunlight actually hits the forest floor. A big tree comes down and immediately, they show this in time lapse. It's really cool. A lot of plants start to grow up really fast and they're racing each other to fill up and get all the sunlight they can. And then later, as you're seeing this competition for all the plants to grow tallest and get more sunlight than the others and these little vines that are choking out others and finding their way to get more sunlight, somewhere at the end comes up these slow-growing behemoths. They're the hard-wooded plants, the trees, you call them. And in time, they surpass all of those little hot shots. And they last much longer. You see, the way is not a race. I know Paul says he ran the race well, but if you actually look at Paul's references, the race was never the fastest. It was the one who stayed in that mattered. We're seeking to grow deep before we grow wide or high. The roots are the key. A tree can only grow as high as its roots go down, right? And that's a fact. They topple over if the roots aren't at least as deep as the tree's height. Which then suggests, you mustard seeds, <laughs> that your height and the way that you will be a shelter to others depends increasingly upon the parts of your life people don't see. Your roots. And this is why it's the unhurried way. Because so much of your health and growth as a Christian will not get attention And if you think that your godliness is about getting people to notice you or trust you or, oh, he's a great person, you are so set up to fall. Much of our growth is in private. It's why Jesus said, when you pray, go to your closet. When you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. There's so much privacy to the deep Christian's life. That's not to say you never share what God's doing in your life. It's to say that you never do it as a show. So the mustard seed grows into something large enough for the birds, much of because of what you can't see happening beneath the surface. Notice that the farmer doesn't try to dawdle the seed and say, oh, I'll help it to grow. Oh, you poor little thing. Give it like a little bed and pillow and nurture it. Look, if you expose the seed to too much air, it can't grow. The farmer just has to let it be. All right, then the, the, the first story, the one we haven't gotten to yet. It's the famous one, the sower of the seed, right? The four types of soils that the seed falls on. This is believed to be Jesus's parable about why about his ministry i am well look at with me verse 13 he, he he gives us the interpretation of this parable verse 13 he says to his disciples do you not understand this parable how then will you understand all the parables like <laughs> you can't get this one this is the key that opens up the rest The sower sows the word. There you go. The seed is the word. The sower is throwing the word, preaching. He's throwing it out there. Verse 15, those and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So, some people are going to hear The word of Jesus. And it's not going to do anything. Satan's going to take that. 
And we have to understand, you cannot control someone's decision for Christ. You can only offer, and they're either blind or they're not. You keep sowing the seed and you don't force it. You don't get angry. You don't try to reason or argue proof for God with them unless they invite and ask for it. Verse 16, second, these are the ones sown on rocky ground. So remember the second seed went on some rocky ground. Uh, The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. Woohoo! So they grow right on up. And, verse 17, they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Part-time Christians. They're like, oh, this is great! And then, like, yeah, that was a phase. <laughs> Actually, I'm just remembering that in um, the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis warns us against thinking of things as a phase. He tells the demons, basically, hey, let your little Christian convert just think that this is a phase in his life. He'll get over it. But notice, it's because they have no root. Verse 17, they have no root in themselves. So, the first problem with the first seed is the devil. The second problem, the second seed, is no depth. Now, the third seed, verse 18. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. And you notice that in the parable, they grew up. They actually grew up. They made it. But, verse 19, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So in the end, no produce comes from these promising plants because they're choked out by the thorns and the weeds. So the devil's a problem, no depth is a problem, and third, distractions are a problem. How do we get depth? How do we eliminate distraction? That's the question that the fourth seed figures out. Verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And what that means is for every seed, 30 more seeds are produced, or 60 or 100 more seeds. Wow, wouldn't that be cool if that was our lives? But it's not a race. Like the seed that had no root was racing its way up. It was the first one to grow, but it died. The second one was on the right path, but it was distracted and it got choked out. Only the final seed grew and bore fruit. How do we find depth and how do we fight distraction? I want to propose, there's so many things you could say, you just throw out all the Christian disciplines, all the things we do to kind of harvest or uh, cultivate the seed, but really we have to trust God and not be in a hurry. Don't take shortcuts. Don't seek to make this happen on your own. But one of the things that has been a burden in my life over the years It's grown as a burden as it's also grown as a passion. I hope that makes sense, and it probably doesn't to some of you. But sometimes you have a passion, and you do something, and you care so much about it, that when you see others don't care about it, it becomes an enormous burden. Um, And that is, and I think we can all relate to this to a degree, but that is preaching. We have a need in the church for patient preaching. 
And this is one of the things, I'm picking this one because it fits with the parables when Jesus says that the seed is the word. And as the sower is throwing the seed, Jesus is throwing the word, is the analogy. And yeah, much of that depends on the person receiving it. It has nothing to do with the way he threw it. Jesus said nothing about, well, the, the first seed failed because of the way the farmer's wrist moved. He needs more elbow. Or he needs to kind of pivot the hips a little bit, get a little more distance. And, and that seed was because he threw it into the wind. He, he's clearly inexperienced. He has to throw it with the wind, not against the wind. Or There's no analysis like that. It's simply, yeah, there were rocks, so there's no roots. There's thorns, so it's distracted. Good soil. Dirt, road, path, bird. It's very simple. But what we need today is patient preaching. What I mean by patient preaching is we have a lot of, we have some, we have some good preaching, which is teaching through the word. Calvary Chapel, I'm so thankful for because I was saved in and grew up, basically was raised in Calvary Chapel. And so I never had to learn what it was like to eat scraps from someone else's table. I got the good stuff, right? And I was blessed with some good teachers in my life who fed me the richest stuff from the Bible all the time, every week, twice a week. Um, where was I going with that? Um, oh, yeah, so there, there's at least, there, are, there is patient preaching in the world. I'm so thankful for that, and I'm encouraged when I hear that, and I, when I'm encouraged when I see that people want that. It's like, yes, those are people who want roots and want depth, and they're tired of the distractions of life. But then, and the reason it has to be patient preaching is because there's lots of preaching, but it's not all patient because then there are people like, yeah, we tried the Bible thing, but people just like weren't that interested. Or they're like, are we done with Hebrews yet? It's kind of long. <laughs> Romans is complicated. Why is Paul so complex? I ask those things too. <laughs> A lot of people ask. You've asked those things. Why you chuckle because you get it. Revelation's mysterious. Yes, but patience. Patience seeks to go through it and gets fruit through it. But we have an well, we've always had an age where churches give up on preaching the words of Jesus. And instead it's, well, how can we live better lives? And subtly and seductively, it puts you at the center of the sermon rather than God. Why? Because you get better feedback. You tell me about God, and it's like, okay, yeah, him, yeah. But you start telling me about myself, oh, I'm listening, I'm interested, because I can, I can do that tomorrow. But we need, and look, there is place for that. I do that too, right? Sometimes there's times to say, this is how to help you, and you give help. But it needs to be in balance with Scripture. We need to know what God says, and we need to know who God is, and not just who I am and what I say. Um... So we need patient preaching. So let me close by giving you guys three helpful ways to participate in patient preaching. Because, you know, the poor preacher hears everything. Well, actually, he doesn't hear everything. He hears only the things that filter through. And sometimes what you overhear, though, when people don't know that you're a pastor, it's really funny what you hear sometimes. It's like, it's as if when I'm in my classroom, I hear my students complaining about Christianity or like the church or whatever. It's almost like they forget <laughs> that I'm a pastor. It's really hilarious. And I find it so insightful just to listen to them. But so let me, let, let's have some helpful hints. Like how do we endure patient preaching? Because let's be honest, sometimes it's an endurance. 
You guys are going, you've been teaching for 50 minutes. It's time, Brandon. It's time. Um, Other times, hearing a sermon is not too indifferent from reading an Ikea assembly manual on your desk. Sometimes it's not, it, it sometimes comes across that clunking, that direct, and it's like, oh my goodness, is this done? Like, I, if I wanted to build a desk, I would have gone home and done it. And it's hard. I have a lot of sympathy for every preacher because they have a hard task. They have to be masters at, a, at literature, and some of them didn't read a single book in high school. <laughs> like me. Um, you, have to, you have to know somewhat of other uh, other languages, just a little bit. You have to read other commentaries and make sense of what's being said here and there. And then, you have to, then you have to not only read the Bible, you have to read the lives of people who are going to hear the Bible. And then you have to be somewhat of a counselor. You have to be somewhat of an oratician so that people can actually understand what you're saying. You have to actually know what you're saying. You have to actually have a relationship with God and not just talk about God. Like there's so, You can make a big list of things that you need. So, yes, it can be hard sometimes and you need patience. But here's why we need a case for preaching in today's world. Um, Because this is the way we get slow and steady growth. It's one of the ways. One of. Now, I understand that preaching is not everything in the church. Yep, the preacher understands that. I know. It's amazing to believe. It's not everything. But it is something. It's not nothing. It's something. And I hear all the time people say, yeah, I hear the guy talk forever. And it's like, it just doesn't do anything for me. But like I said earlier, it doesn't matter if it does something for you because it's doing something to you. If you receive the seed, it's doing something to you, whether you enjoy it or not. Okay, so... I believe that preaching shapes our souls and our lives if we participate in it three ways. Number one, we show up. Preaching will shape our souls and change our lives if we show up. This is huge. Because today, I can go on this device right up here, And I can go to the podcast app and I can search any church in America and beyond. And I can, on demand, click the sermon which looks most interesting to me and listen to it. We can all do that. We can, and you know, we have our own podcast. So you can skip out. You can stop coming and be like, you know, all I really, if I could listen to Brandon on two times speed, I can get through the same stuff faster. Win-win. <laughs> and I can vacuum the carpet at the same time. It's a pretty good opportunity. However, however, part of the power and the way that preaching shapes us is when we show up. Because when we choose to go somewhere together, we are choosing a priority. Now, all through the week, we have our ritual destinations. It's either the mall, it's the grocery store, it's the gym, it's the workplace, it's wherever you like to frequent. We make our pilgrimages every week all the time. And yet the Christian wants to make no pilgrimage to the house of God is a little baffling. I get it. It can be boring and very predictable. I get that. But remember, it's not what it's doing for you. It's what it's doing to you. 
So we show up and we get to we get to hear something live. Now, sermons that you can get on demand are great and helpful when you have nothing or when you want more. But what they offer you is information. Live preaching offers you invitation. There's something powerful about being in the same room with the same words. Because as the Gospels show us, the word didn't just come through a message in a bottle. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I believe preaching is meant to be done in person and with people. Because I promise you, if you are a different batch of people, everything I'm saying would be coming out incredibly different. Same message, but it would come out different because the Spirit drives things and the Spirit knows what's needed. There's something that's live about preaching. So we show up. We show up and it can begin to do something. Second, we sit down. My rump is telling me that. By now, I'm feeling it. Yeah, no, but we do sit down and think about the gift of sitting down. We live in a time where, well, for me... I've consumed thousands upon thousands of messages, only a small number of which I was actually sitting down for. You know, we could be busy and getting God's word, and that's good, that's fine. But there is a moment every week when we get to sit down, and the act of sitting down says, listen, oh my soul, because this is important. So I'm going to sit down. Right Now, if I was washing the dishes... Back in the corner, if you guys had that opportunity here, your soul wouldn't be shaped the same way because you are not saying to it, sit down and receive, this is important. You're saying, I'll get information. Remember Martha and Mary? Mary literally sat down at the feet of Jesus. But Martha in our world wants us to keep moving. You don't have time for this this week. I mean, let's be honest. It's not that important. But when I sit down, I minimize distraction, and I say, soul, this is important. Now, granted, all of you have been distracted at some point. So either something I said or something that hit your mind or your stomach growled or you just had the urge to check the World Series score and you looked on your phone. Or you're thinking, you know what? Summertime, let's go here on vacation. Oh, yeah, seed, right? What? It happens. But by sitting down, it's, it's slimming down. And you're forcing. The posture of sitting is saying, I'm going to subject myself to what's being said. I'm going to subject myself to what's being said. Because unlike television, you don't get to skip. And then finally, we listen. So we show up, we sit down, and then we listen. Um, that might seem obvious, but we're not good listeners. Listening is being present to what's being said. And like I was saying, we have to be subjected to what's being said. When I'm talking with somebody else, you know how often, when you're having a dialogue, you know how often I can actually control the conversation? Even though they're the one talking, you just ask a question and you control the content. You don't like that, so you change the subject. You can control what another person's telling you often, but you can't do that in a sermon. <laughs> that's, the, that's probably the worst part about it. You're like, I don't like this part, or I wish this would be done now, but you have no remote control in your hand. 
And we're in a time where you got to go to the bathroom, so you hit pause. You've already seen this part, so you fast forward. Commercials, so you skip or switch the channel. We don't have those options when Brandon has the mic. So we have to listen. And that's part of the power because listen, when we relinquish control of what's coming, it gives God permission to go where we would never let him. Because the minute you don't like it, you're going to change it. But when you can't change it, God's saying, ha, the bathroom can wait. Get this right now. And then the other way that we listen is um, no sermon is passive. I really believe that if you guys want to get the seed of the word in your hearts and to grow fruit, you cannot be a passive listener. You have to be an active listener. And this is what I mean. The preacher works very hard. And it can often look like he's the only one doing the work. But a good listener is doing just as much work as the speaker. You're dialoguing, even though it's not out loud, and even though you can't control the flow of the conversation, you're dialoguing with the words that Jesus is pushing. And you're saying, okay, wait, how does that work in my life? What do I do with that? You are working it out. You are working as hard as the preacher. That's real and true listening. And that, by the way, is what Jesus is doing with the parables. They didn't understand it. Most of us don't understand it right away when we read it. The point is, is I'm going to throw this out at you, and you got to fig- you got to meet me halfway and do some of the work. That's when it will stick and grow fruit in your life. That's when it will stick and grow fruit in your life. So it's as if we always want to hear someone just say, here's the answer, everyone. It's four. And everyone's like, four. Write it down. Great. We'll go home. We know it's four. We know it's four. And Jesus is saying, hmm. The Pharisees say four, I say unto you, two plus two. And the disciples are like, two plus two? What? What does that even mean? What do we do with two and two? And then somewhere along their, lot, their growth, their, their journey on the unhurried way, it's like, four! Two and two is four! Preaching is a crossword puzzle. Things are thrown at you, and half of the work is you to figure out where this works in your life. Yeah, I do a lot of that work too for you, but I'm not you. You are you. And Jesus is trying to say, hear that and put it here. He said, B1, put the checker on B1. Oh, that's active listening. So, some ways to um, grow fruit is we need more patient preaching in the church. And that's not, by the way, this was not an excuse for me to go long. I'm sorry for that. But, and it's not, my, it's not my reason every week. That's not my point. Although it's kind of fun to see who has the biggest bladder and who doesn't and who, falls, and who falls asleep and who doesn't and who nods off and who picks up their phone first. I see more than you think. Like, it's kind of fun. But it's, um, that's not why. But guys, I, we live in a time where there is no patience for preaching. There's no patience in the larger scheme. There's no patience for a church. But slow and steady grows the seed. That's what Jesus is showing us in all three parables, all about seed. All of it was about this progression of growth. 
And it was all the unhurried way. Not the Pharisee way, not the Sadducee way, not the Essene way, not the Zealot way, but the unhurried way of Christ receives the seed, shows up, sits down, listens, and puts it into place. And I think we will see a great harvest. We just have to be patient. Because God is not in a hurry. He's willing to take baby steps with us. Father, thank you for being so patient and gentle with us.